Season 3, Episode 12, Dakota Adams. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis about the January 6, 2021 attack on our, our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. In this episode, I'll be talking with Dakota Adams, who is in the unenviable position of having been raised in the household of infamous seditious conspirator Stuart Rhodes. We'll talk about what that was like, his insights on the far right, some family history related to Dusty Buckle and Roger Elvick, the origin of the Oath Keepers' foundational declaration of orders we will not obey, and many other topics in what I found to be a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. But before we get to that, let's do some housekeeping. I'm still reading and cataloging some 18,000 pages of transcripts from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, in addition to reading the committee's final report. It's clear that the study of this material is going to require uh, lots of time on the part of many researchers, not just me. It's going to occupy uh, many people for some time to come. I mean, indeed, you could probably set up a January 6th studies program at some university just based on the volume of material that's been produced by the committee, not, you know, letting alone everything that's been done by the Department of Justice. So anyone else who's reading this material really has my condolences. It's a Sisyphean task. And as you read through the transcripts, it makes it all the more remarkable that the committee was able to pare the report down to some 800-odd pages. One tip I'd offer, uh, if you are actually interested in reading the, the transcripts, um, make a note of which attorneys are representing which clients. As reported in the committee hearings, it is absolutely true that you can accurately predict what some witnesses will say based on who's representing them in their deposition. Now, there are cooperative witnesses. There are some witnesses who are interested in obfuscation, but who nonetheless appear truthful to some degree. And then you have the witnesses who appear to be just outright obstructionist, uh, either invoking the Fifth Amendment repeatedly or claiming that the committee stands in violation of the House rules and therefore refusing to testify on that basis. Um, that particular excuse is, is rather strange uh, to, to, you know, read these people talking to a room full of lawyers and members of Congress, you know, people who work for the House of Representatives and lecturing them um, about the House rules, right? Like these people have self-appointed themselves parliamentarians. And, you know, I, I don't think they understand the House rules. They're just looking for a basis not to testify. Um, in addition, of course, there are, there are people who have memory problems, right, regarding what is probably, you know, a very noteworthy event. It's like 9-11. If you were in D.C. on January 6th, you probably remember a lot about that day and the events that are leading up to it. And these are the people who are personally involved. And yet some of them have some pretty fuzzy memories about things that are documented uh, with regard to, you know, emails and uh, other communications that they received from various people. Uh, who, you know, might be co-conspirators. At any rate, you can absolutely predict the degree of cooperation of various witnesses based on which attorneys are representing them. Uh, there's, you could model it and, you know, wind up with a pretty strong correlation. Related to today's, to today's interview, on Monday, January 23rd, 
a jury convicted the second tranche of Oath Keepers of seditious conspiracy in the January 6th plot. These four defendants, Roberto Minuta, Joseph Hackett, David Marshall, and Edward Vallejo, were the so-called second-tier conspirators in the case. And so it's remarkable that they were all convicted of that top-line charge of seditious conspiracy, particularly given that uh, th only three Sorry, uh, of the you know three of the five defendants in the first case were acquitted of that charge, and they were you know um, arguably. I mean, again, this shows like different juries come to different conclusions. Um, you know that I mean, someone who's you know uh, like Jess Watkins, right, leading a stack into the Capitol, um, is found innocent of seditious conspiracy, uh, but someone you know, like Ed Vallejo, who is, you know, back at the hotel with the guns, but nonetheless talking very big, um, is is convicted. So, kind of interesting. I think a lot of people were done in by their, their mouths, by, you know, all this uh, really seditious talk that, you know, they didn't, I mean, just, again, implausible, the defense that they offered. Um, and so, even more successful arguably uh, the government has been in this case than in the first case although again not you know we shouldn't de-emphasize the fact that Rose and Meggs were convicted of seditious conspiracy so uh the defendants you know who took plea deals in these cases really they made the right call they look very smart in retrospect, whether they be Oath Keepers or Proud Boys, you know, yeah, seditious conspiracy is a serious charge, but you're going to do a lot worse if you get convicted of it at trial, especially along with other charges. So, speaking of January 6th uh, seditious conspiracy trials, the trial of the leadership of the Proud Boys is now underway in D.C. before Judge Timothy Kelly, a Trump appointee. Now, I know that that probably raises some red flags for some listeners, but Judge Kelly doesn't really appear to be favorably disposed to this set of defendants. Um, he's letting the government present their case as written, basically. And um, he's made some odd rulings, like, okay, we're not going to mention the fact that the flag that Enrique Terrio burns that prompts the arrest um, and gets him out of D.C. in time for January 6th with a BLM flag. Uh, we're not going to mention that in front of the jury. Of course, you know, I don't I don't know. I'm, presumably there's a question, but the idea that the jury isn't going to find this information out somehow when there's repeated references to this flag, they're going to wonder, right? I mean, it, you know, when one, one person on the jury figures that out, you know, assuming they didn't know it ahead of time, yeah. Uh, but again, the idea that their own actions are somehow prejudicial is a strange one, right? Nonetheless... Um, he is actually, I think, presiding fairly over this. And I think, like many other Trump judges, um, they know they have an asterisk after their name. And they are, I think, at pains to be seen to do justice. Um, with a, a few exceptions, right? I mean, we could talk about McFadden and the phenomenon of the, uh, the bench trial. Okay, um, in any event... This is going to go on for a while. The Proud Boys trial, the first Oath Keepers case, took eight weeks, and this one is going to be longer, in part because the defense attorneys in this case have been 
they, they have even more bizarre defense strategies than the Oath Keepers attorneys did. Um, they're trying, you know, sort of Hail Mary things like trying to call Donald Trump as a witness, uh, making some kind of public authority defense on that basis. So we'll see. It's currently day 13. The government is still presenting evidence, as I anticipate they will do um, for, for most of the trial. And again, if the defense, you know, they, I think it looks, it seems likely that the defense part of the trial is also going to take a lot longer than it did in the Oath Keepers case. Um, one of the issues that is has come up, been raised by the defense, is the issue of government informants, right? So part of the defense strategy is to claim that, uh, you know, there's no evidence there was a plan, uh, and therefore no conspiracy. Um, that's very much contradicted by the evidence. Um, so, you know, at some point, they're, they're free to flip around various theories. Uh, you know, they're probably going to say that, oh, well, there were, we know there were informants in the Proud Boys, and they were the ones who did it, not these people who are documented members of the Ministry of Self-Defense chat, uh, which, again, you know, abs it's very, very strange uh, claim, but nonetheless, they're, they're going to make that. Now, part of what's interesting to me here is that I think the government is trying to keep that from evidence, the extent to which the Proud Boys were infiltrated, and it's probably not for the reason that uh, the defendants would claim, right? Uh, which is that, oh, this was done by these agents of the government who had infiltrated the Proud Boys. Instead, again, why were they? Why were there people informing on the, you know, to the FBI in the Proud Boys on January sixth? Um, we have Joe Biggs claiming that he provided information to the government um, about Antifa that he had when he was an FBI informant, and so I strongly suspect that that's what the government was doing. They weren't getting a lot of great inside information on the Proud Boys plans and preparations from these informants. Instead, it was driven to the left, right? They were using these informants inside this fascist paramilitary gang to, quote, gather intelligence on what the left was doing. And so that would be embarrassing to the government and partly explain the uh, utter failure of so many agencies to correctly uh, predict and prepare for the events of January 6th. So we will see how that turns out. That's just speculation on my part, but I think the government will probably try to uh, suppress, you know, the fact that that's what was going on there, right? So if you're interested in following uh, the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy case, um, you can follow Brandy Buckman uh, or Roger Parloff at Lawfare, Brandy Buckman at Daily Costs. Um, I'll post links to a couple of articles they've done, including Parloff's uh, daily courtroom blog at Lawfare in the show notes. Um, but this is going to be ongoing for a while. And speaking of government officials whose activities have rightfully drawn attention from law enforcement, the Department of Justice has charged one Charles F. McGonigal, a former special agent in charge of the New York field office, and also special agent in charge of counterintelligence efforts in New York. This is a rather big deal, and ought to be the top news story in the country. 
McGonagall was involved in the Trump-Russia investigation and many more things. Uh, there's only one degree of separation between McGonagall and Donald Trump, and that one degree of separation is Oleg Deripaska, um, although probably also Rudy Giuliani as well. So even if this case isn't as, you know, so far as we know, directly related to January 6th, um, McGonagall left the government in 2018. Nonetheless, it raises serious questions about the FBI, uh, particularly the New York office of the FBI. And one thing I'd like to draw your attention to is that McGonagall's lawyer, Seth Ducharme, works for Bracewell, a firm that used to be called Bracewell and Giuliani. Yes, Rudy Giuliani was a named partner at Bracewell, which is an old firm that traces its roots back, I believe, 46 or 49. Um, and when he joined the firm, Bracewell put his name on the door. So it became Bracewell and Giuliani until Giuliani left when? Uh, 2016. So that's one heck of a coincidence. Another one is that Ducharme served directly under William Barr at the Department of Justice and served as the acting U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York from July 2020 through March 2021, uh, when Richard Donahue took his job. So this is a Trump-connected lawyer who may even know McGonagall on at least a professional basis from his time at the Department of Justice in the Eastern District of New York. So, again, looking at these lawyers and their connections um, to Trump world is pretty, it is an interesting way to analyze how these things proceed. This is a, a mob of lawyers uh, working for these Trump-connected defendants uh, who, again, in this case, are connected to oligarchs and Russian spies. All right, so go to the interview in a moment, but first, let's do the numbers again. It's been a little while, sourced as always from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 949 individuals charged, an increase of 16 since the last tally. There have been a total of 409 indictments, up one. Six deceased, no change there. Two dismissals, no change there either. One acquittal, same. 551 convictions, an increase of 17 since the last tally, and 370 sentencings, an increase of 11 since the last tally. So the old trend was that convictions had been outpacing new arrests, but now it seems that new arrests have picked up again, which sort of confirms the idea that the limiting factor all along has been a resource issue with regard to the docket at the DCD. I think that's a hopeful development. Um, because, you know, they've, they're, it, that, that pace is the best pace we have seen in quite some time. Um, nonetheless, it is still clear at this point that at this pace, the statute of limitations is going to apply to some of these defendants before everyone who could be charged is charged. Uh, which relates to a, a new area, or one of the, we've seen this evolving story of what apologists for January 6th, uh, what seditionists are saying about it. And the new line, um, other than you know all the old lines we've seen about Ray Epps and Fed Surrection and all that nonsense, their new line is, oh, that was two years ago, it's old news. And guess what? In the, the criminal justice system, it is very normal 
for people to be charged for things that happened two years ago. So, I mean, look at McGonagall, right? I mean, McGonagall left government in 2018 and is you know being charged five years later. So, you know, that is just the, the new line that they're trying. Obviously, it's not going to work, and the court of public opinion is like, oh, get over it. Look, if this happened anywhere else, um, it would be a matter of consequence. I mean, the last book I read before I started reading the committee report was about the English Civil War, right? So, you know, I mean, if the, the 17th century still has things to teach us about politics, um, certainly, you know, something that happened two years ago is still extremely relevant. All right, so let's move on now, finally, to the interview uh, with Dakota Adams. Um, he's enrolled in college, and so I want to thank him for taking the time to speak with me and with you, my dear listener. Um, he also has a substack that I would uh, heartily recommend. It's at Dakota V. Adams. If you want to search for it, just search for Dakota V. Adams, and his uh, substack and link tree will come up. But I will also post uh, a link to these in the show notes, and I'll, I'll put it at the very end. I know there, there are fewer links uh, this time than there are many times, but uh, I'll put those two links at the very end of the show notes if you want to access that material that way. Hello, and this is Capital Insurrection Report. I'm Scott Kuhn, and I'm speaking today with Dakota V. Adams, son of Tasha Adams, and someone else. Um, so we're talking today about the uh, his experiences and uh, his take on what I, I believe is a, a very dangerous movement that he was kind of in on the ground floor of and has pretty much witnessed for his uh, entire life. So um, I'd like to begin with, uh, you grew up in the survivalist movement. Um, so what was that like? All right, so growing up as the, I don't know, be the exalted extension or the uh, sign or air. I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't even put it that far. I was a, uh, an accessory <laughs> to Stuart Rhodes. I was a component to a component to a costume. Because the picturesque uh, John Birch Society brochure picture family with all the with all the children and the image of the happy life was part of Stewart's sales pitch throughout his career. So growing up in the survivalist movement, the very best emotional analogy that I've been able to come up with, is that lots of people have experienced ch their childhoods in a lot of different ways. My childhood experience is of being in a car that your father has just parked on a set of railroad tracks and seeing the train coming and your parents having a quiet argument where your mom is trying to get him to drive off the tracks without openly acknowledging that anything is wrong. And then just being stuck there, watching the watching the lights come on. That is that is metaphorical. Yes, that did not literally happen. Okay. <laughs> it would be cool now, if fact, it did. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying it, it would be cool if it did. <laughs> no, in fact, Stuart, uh, because of a stint 
doing cases for accidental um, deaths on railroads was fanatical about railroad safety for my entire childhood, which is the, one of the only things he was right about. And this uh, sense came from the fact that Stuart was actually a very bad prepper. He was not good at it. And the constant awareness of what I believe to be the factual coming of the end of the world, the collapse of society, fall of Western civilization, balkanization of the United States into myriad warring factions or worse, uh, takeover by a hostile totalitarian government that could more effectively persecute people than uh, roving gangs of outlaws could. And just having the constant knowledge of that and then seeing how we were failing to actually be ready to survive any of it or be off the X for any kind of attack and not being able to do anything about it kind of defines my entire childhood experience. So is that just a secularized version of the apocalypse in the book of Revelations or is are those not mutually exclusive? <clears throat> I would say not mutually exclusive. Um, there's a very specific, I think, kind of obsession with the looming end of the world that is perpetually 12 to 18 months away like it's not happening so soon that you should be in an immediate panic but it's just far enough in the future to loom over your entire life people i think get addicted to the sense of impending doom and um, looming catastrophe as much as believing that they have secret knowledge about the world or they're smarter than anyone else. That is a hook only for some people. And I see a lot of people trying to explain all conspiracy theorists with that psychology. For apocalypse conspiracy theorists, it's about the looming, the looming end and the, the, the doom hanging over you. And people who are very religious may experience more hope and a, or a greater sense of superiority when talking about the end of the world. But usually believe in the final end of the world in the book in uh, Revelation or um, a takeover by the Archons or whatever it is, or the aliens or whatever it is, that's their particular cup of tea as uh, something that comes after the preamble collapse that everybody else is obsessing over. So the timeline is pretty much universal. And then what happens after is where it starts to diverge. So just millenarianism, but secular, but also there's religious versions of it. Yeah, there's religious flavors, and people want to tell you all about the coming return of Christ after the collapse of civilization, but everybody pretty much agrees on the collapse of civilization in 18 months, and usually on the mechanical causes of it, such as uh, hyperinflation or... Uh, or global war, or the dumping of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, or uh, P. And Y2K, any yeah. insert prices here. Yeah, I, I, I've seen any number of versions. I, you may not, are you familiar with how Lindsay is really great planet Earth? Oh, boy. Before you yes. die, I know. Um, but that, that was first version of that I encountered as a kid growing up at back in the 1970s. And it seems like there's always some text that you could read and deconstruct, some kind of exegesis that you can run 
to generate these predictions. Um, although I think maybe the secular people use current events and the devout people use the Bible. Um, what I see a lot of is the very devout people. Um, even the, even secular conspiracy theorists and survivalists usually believe in some kind of occult force behind everything. Like the uh, the belief in like secret pedophile cults and sacrifice and all of that was kind of unfocused and background, but very much present in the foundation of all this. And then is funneled into specific culprits like the Council on Foreign Relations or the Jews, depending on the person. It's and also, yeah, and then um, very religious people would also hyperfixate on current events, um, sometimes to a greater degree than quote-unquote secular uh, conspiracy theorists, survivalists, than uh, out of a desire to peer through and identify elements of biblical prophecy. There's an entire industry in publishing books about how current events are adding up to biblical prophecy and uh, where a lot of secular survivalists might try to analyze general trends or like the larger movement of events um, more religious conspiracy theorists will examine specifics and try to fit them into scripture and then there are people who are sort of accelerationists and like they see the coming apocalypse and they want to bring it about like the, the yeah. book the book boys uh, yes, kind of a racial apocalypse. Yes, and that's uh, not a crowd I hung out with a, t a lot. Uh, there was not a lot of accelerationism inside Oath Keepers, not overtly, but the philosophy in Oath Keepers and the militia movement is really only ever one step removed from accelerationism. Yeah, and I yeah, also viewer in particular would edge would edge towards it. Now, one of the, the weird thing I do think that many people sort of in the study of extremism kind of underemphasizes the regional nature of it, and I think of the Oath Keepers as kind of a, a Western group. I mean, is that fair? I know they're nationwide, but when it comes to the ideology and ideas, I see it as very much situated geographically. I know Oath Keepers had a very strong uh, presence throughout the South as well, and we had, for a while, a very active um, New York chapter also, and then, and then through the Midwest. But I would say yes, especially when it came to areas where Oath Keepers had penetration into large and typically liberal cities, where there was a lot of activity and, organ and organization there was definitely the center of gravity is in the Western United States. Now I noticed um, looking at your Twitter feed, you use John Brown as a backdrop. And I personally, I love John Brown, but there's a weird sense of which he's kind of emblematic of this. He sees a coming apocalypse and he's 
he is in a sense accelerationist, except he's doing it for a better cause, right? Abolition. So, is is there sort of personal relevance there that that you chose that particular picture? Well, there's not terrible personal relevance to uh, my childhood and survivalism. There's personal relevance in I've made a conscious decision to reject, like, in a lot of my writing, and as I look back on childhood memories, I've seen that there was a lot of implicit and unspoken or background white supremacy or tolerance of being white supremacist adjacent baked into the militia movement and the patriot movement even in areas where they were supposedly uh dead set against white supremacists or um racists and there's a very particular um knee-jerk reaction villainization of john brown that i see in a lot of places on the right which doesn't make a lot of sense unless you're thinking about it from a racial perspective because all the rest of the way around that should be somebody that your standard militia fanatic would lionize you know went against the government to do what was right and tried to arm oppressed people and cut people up with a broadsword and was uh willing to die for his beliefs and was after death became a martyr like that sounds like the protagonist of a libertarian sci-fi novel and yet there is a lot less room to idealize john brown in a lot of places on the right and the only reason that could be happening is if there is a gut level sort of unspoken discomfort with why he was committing violence and so i've decided to center that as a conscious rejection of that and also as a reminder where like a lot of people i associate now with with now on the left do not believe at all in the american mythos and i still have sympathy towards the american mythos and uh in particular i still view the american founding fathers as absolute radicals for their time whose work should be taken just as seriously as uh like anarchist theorists who also had really unfortunate views about the jews that they wrote extensively about which comes up a lot uh at the same time john brown is a case study in how there was absolutely the capacity for people to understand that the shape of the world was wrong and act on it if they were committed enough to their ideals. And John Brown went a step beyond even mainstream abolitionism to complete egalitarianism and was not far enough removed from Thomas Jefferson to give Thomas Jefferson a pass with all of the caveats that you can muster from looking at his life story. And one of the things, Bob, I think is remarkable is that many people... Like, I don't know if even Stuart, you know, I mean, he brought his son with him to Harper's Ferry, right? Yes. Um, you know, and it's like, I, you know, even no matter how your most avid militant, I mean, to put the next generation on the line in that way is something, you know, that. Well, I mean, that's as uh, John Brown and uh, Sheriff Mack, who wanted to, who's, um, I, I really deeply want to someday find the clip where he tells and told the news reporters that he was putting his family on the front lines. 
women and children first. Yeah, and then Bundy Ranch. There's one line where it's like, "We're doing this for our children," and it's like, "We're doing this with our children." <laughs> that with our children right here. And uh, Stuart tried to take me to Bundy Ranch, and was vetoed by my mom. So good for. <laughs> yep, I was I was not going to go at anyway, but that made it easier. Now I, I I'm sure you've thought about this more than I have. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the the theory of militias. And one of the things that I, I find notable about, you know, the, I've, I've lurked on, you know, Oath Keepers website since pretty much the very inception. And I'll discuss why I found it alarming from the beginning later on. Yes. Um, but I mean, it seems profoundly ahistorical to me, right? I always thought that the use of the militia really, because it occurs in the Second Amendment, because it occurs in the Constitution, it served to give them a, a, a kind of legitimacy. I prefer to call them paramilitary gangs. Um, and it's interesting, when we talk about the regional flavor, like if you mention militias, particularly white militias in the South, we know what they are. We have white militias here in North Carolina. We have state anti-militia laws promulgated against the red shirts who did a coup in Wilmington in 1898. Um, and so it's kind of an unearned legitimacy. But later on, like on January 6th, his theory was that militias, and I, I believe it was Caldwell who said this explicitly, we're the militia, we can go wherever we want, do whatever we want. And that's just historically not the case. Militia were created by the state, authorized by the state, and they obeyed orders of the state. And yet on January 6th, ultimately, that's, Pretty much the opposite. They, they were profoundly local. You didn't, you wouldn't send national militia, militias from the various states to D.C. That's just completely. That's that's that never happened. Yeah. So what we have here is the, for one thing, attempting to really, really reach under the hope of having like the aegis of executive authority. And the orders of the president. That was the entire. That was the entire. That was the entire cover. Was that if I believe there at least what they believed was going to happen was that if they were successful in stopping the certification and halting the transfer of power, that Trump would cover for them through the invocation of the uh, uh, Insurrection Act and possibly, I suppose, pardons. Yes, but the Insurrection Act like you're talking about, wouldn't really have covered the mechanism by which they were doing it. And so this is something Stuart is very much aware of. And this is, uh, when you, if, we, if we're going to talk about like the 10 orders and the founding of Oath Keepers and all of that, this is a situation where the inevitable decline of Oath Keepers from its inception in a place of having almost legitimacy and a position as a political activist outreach veterans group, its inevitable degradation of its very short half-life into Stuart Rhodes's personal roving private army uh, can be charted by the opposing lines of what Stuart wanted to do to secure his place in American history and what he believed the role of the militia was in his spoken ideology that he would talk about in his speeches, where his conception of the militia 
for one thing, underpinning the entire militia and patriot and libertarian movement is a deep-seated belief in the illegitimacy of the state as it currently exists. And the state is at best uh, broken and misguided or lost and needs to be corrected and repaired and at worst needs to be done away with and replaced or simply removed and trashed as a concept. And building on that, um, Stewart's conception of re rebuilding the militia system, beginning with local groups, then county, then state, then um, networking, mutual aid, and support acted as a cover for an actual program to plant um, guerrilla cells awaiting activation and a safe house network throughout the United States for a later war against the federal government that was implicit in every single speech he ever gave and in all of Oath Keeper's ideology. Yeah, that that's huge. And I think that it really marks the Oath Keepers as a kind of war against political modernity. And every modern state, you see the executive power of the state growing. Um, it's just a characteristic of as states grow, if they're responsive to democratic demands from the people, they gain what we call state capacity, the ability to do things. And on some sense, this is a reaction to that where, no, we're going to live off the land or become yeomen again and mm -hmm. reject all of that. Um, and create reject modernity, return, return to tradition become the idealized um, Roman military, Roman citizen militarized middle class that is uh, fetishized and mythologized in the right wing circle. And the funny thing is, of course, even in, in the the Roman Republic or uh, under uh, you know Caesar, like that didn't exist. That wasn't a thing. You had a large and capable state. That was in fact the you know the the advent of the dark ages is the death of that state and the, the very capable state that the romans created you know marks the, the inception of the dark ages although that's perhaps over overstated um yeah it's a weird mix of american frontier myth of the the mythology of classical of western classicalism of the like worship of and very vast overstatement of the roots of civil law and democratic institutions and republicanism in the great civilizations of Europe and a super disproportionate emphasis put on the Roman Republic and uh, Greek democracy out of, out of all um, proportion to its actual historical effect. And then also a fixation on the like late dark age, early medi early medieval yeomanry and the village militia in the old system that was event that eventually withered away as we got more as we got more feudalism, like the the uh, old Saxon feared. It's all in this kind of fictionalized view of the past that is the almost unconscious emotional foundation of how 
the militant right wing believes the world should be and coincidentally is the emotional foundation for things like a general plan ost and the entire uh post-war nazi fantasy and adding that i i you know i think that you look at like the, the sort of militia as a kind of uh you know he is he sees it as a kind of a populist counterbalance to the state but the reality is that we are all modern people right and you mentioned that he's bad at survivalism in fact i would posit that perhaps many of these people who are preppers are bad at it it is and very we, common to be a very bad prepper it's in fact the norm i like the grocery store personally <laughs> <laughs> if the grocery store goes away three days all the stuff is gone if the supply chains break down i don't dwell on that but i think preppers do they dwell on it and even though most of them are not very well positioned to actually survive as we saw in texas where there was not unless they were smart and quiet about it which a bunch of these people are also very bad at, at keeping their preps low-key the, the instinct to brag, in my opinion, is much more prevalent. Um, didn't see a lot of people showcasing how their prepper lifestyle got them through all of the Texas power outages caused by Texas being a failed state. It didn't really happen. And there is almost a looking forward to the collapse, even though it would personally screw up their entire as a fixation to prove that they were right and that's like the coming vindication is the one aspect that is very much like the like rapture and revelation but secularized by yeah i was right you were wrong um i mean the weird thing is that i i think of the storage of all this food like which i know apparently you and your family would raid when your father wouldn't buy you food so you would have yeah. to eat food in the basement which is all produced factories um next week i'm actually putting the potatoes in the garden because um, it's warm down here and you can uh, plant potatoes relatively early out but i'm doing like bougie fingerling potatoes um you know not like my survivalist uh, heirloom potatoes but yeah um and, and there's this idea that like only we survive but in point of fact like other people do marksmanship too other people know how to garden this isn't ideological this is just um i don't know it's like there are other reasons to do this than the, the coming apocalypse i enjoy garden fresh food i don't necessarily think everything is going to end yeah um and there is there are wings of the prepper movement that embrace the things that be very useful in the apocalypse as a lifestyle that focuses more on sustainable living and weaving that into your daily life for a more fulfilling life in general. And that is uh, like the one of the most major proponents of that and one of the only uh, right-wing militia, um, I suppose the term would be thought leader, that I still read from time to time is the is the Mountain Gorilla blog. And I, I do not even know what that is. I'm gonna write it down right now. That's a 
uh, goes under the pen name of Jonathan Mosby, which is the part about him that's really disappointing is uh, from a very smart guy, uh, continuing belief in basically neo-Confederate myth that informs a lot of his background ideology. But you say Mosley? Yes, Mosley. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and that's the um, that's the Mountain Gorilla blog, and uh, somebody that um, chewed out Stewart out of training because his thing is he's a former um, Air, airborne airborne ranger, special forces. He's got he's got three tab stack that makes him a super uh, special limited edition man, still in his plastic sleeve, and he does a lot of tactical and medical training. Yeah, at his uh, ranch at his undisclosed location, but he is a huge proponent of things like permaculture and developing barter network neighbors for basic small things to lay the groundwork for you who need to do that if the grocery store doesn't work anymore. He's one of the only people I've ever seen that has really thought through the full mechanics of how you're going to live in the long term if the entire modern supply chain falls apart. And came to the conclusion of I need to start uh, laying the foundations for the village that will need to survive together now while it's easy. And almost nobody else does that. 95% of the militia movement doesn't do that. Over 70% um, don't even ideologically subscribe to that. They're going to be fucked once the dehydrated potatoes run out. Um, Yeah. What what were you guys eating when you would have to raid the stuff in the basement? So it would always start out with the good stuff, like because uh, predominantly, except for when Stuart would do things like uh, steal my paycheck to buy hundreds of dollars and Campbell's canned soup before the 2016 election, um, most of our food storage came from the Mormon canneries, and the Mormons are past masters at the entire preparedness lifestyle and for the over the course of your entire life maintaining a ideally five-year supply of storage food for yourself your family anyone you expect to have living with you on top of months worth of staples to hand out to neighbors whenever you can keeping that on hand permanently requires you to rotate that stuff out and eat it before it expires over the course of your regular life. And so your prepper stash is not like a separate thing buried in the woods. It's in the cycle of how you live. And also the ones put a lot more emphasis on living through the collapse and persecution to the other side. And so they think, you know, much more than like fetishizing over accounts from the war in Bosnia, they think, what would we want to have on hand if you were living a very hard scrabble life year after year going through the worst times? So they have freeze-dried canned um, cookie dough and fruit punch mix and the good restaurant-style mashed potato dehydrated pearls and all kinds of dried fruits, dried vegetables, uh, hot cocoa, and then, of course, uh, flour, salt, sugar, all the beans, all of the beans, uh, plenty of wheat. 
uh, can dehydrated and powdered milk. Like the uh, the list is truly endless. The catalog is incredibly impressive, and the quality is always high. It's like the Kirkland of uh, survival food storage. And because Stuart has inns with the Mormon Church, that is where we would go for all of our long-term food storage solutions. There's a dog barking. That's fine. Good girl. Some animal outside, perhaps. I I wouldn't even know how to cook with that stuff, to be honest with you. I usually use fresh ingredients. Um, dehydrated eggs, I presume, powdered eggs. Yes, dehydrated eggs were a major feature, but um, they that was the one thing that was never, ever good. Yeah. <laughs> Is, uh, like, I periodically experienced cravings for almost all of the survival foods that we had, uh, like... Even mount like sometimes I think to myself that like the teriyaki mountain house or uh, dumpling MREs sound really good right now. Various canned never... What's that? Various canned meats, the delicious flavor of nitrates. Um, the canned meats were really nasty. Very minor. That yeah. was uh no, the canned meats were almost not, not even in the picture. Like like short term like canned soup and spam, that was considered like baby's baby's first prepping or very short term because it wouldn't last for five years uh, buried in a secret ditch in the woods like everything else, and so it was very heavily de-emphasized unless Stuart was panic buying in a sudden frenzy. Uh, yeah, it's the uh, the nasty the only nasty one consistently was the powdered eggs. That's the only thing that is just objectively bad um the downside is though is that like if you're buying in bulk a lot of stuff uh two of the cheaper items that we end up with a lot of were uh ended up with a lot of leftover oatmeal because it just doesn't pair as well with anything as uh rice and beans do so you go through that first if you have somebody who's trying to cook complete meals using uh, mixed and matched food storage and uh, the cheapest available chicken breasts from the store. And then out of all the dried fruits, the uh, thing that nobody liked was the dried apple chips. And so the other stuff would get depleted a little bit and then replaced and depleted and replaced. And then as we moved, there's an increasing backlog of oatmeal and canned apple chips until that is all you have to live on and it's like if you had to survive for days at a time off of the candy in the bottom of the bag after halloween that nobody likes the forgotten stuff that was the that was the old chips that i've talked about before um living off of for months on end and i have since made my peace with oatmeal uh my sisters have not made their peace with oatmeal and several, several of my siblings will just never willingly eat oatmeal again. And I will never, never again willingly touch, uh, dried apple. Yep. And in, in any dried apple at all or powdered eggs. Well, sad, and if you actually, if you take oatmeal and, uh, dried oatmeal and, uh, dried oats rather and put the cuisine art, um, you can actually turn it into oat flour, which you can then use to bake various things. Um, 
it's there was some of that there was a lot of attempts to bake uh my mom actually ended up because she had next to no good attention utensils ended up with a bunch of scars on her forearms uh flatter from trying to make various different baked goods with the dried apple chips and fry or cook them properly and she was worried that she would look like a drug like a drug addict in public because of all of like the open sores and burns up and down her up and down her arms from grease spray yet another trying to make something edible bizarre trauma like inflicted on your your long-suffering mom uh by this really yes awesome. just by just by trying to cook dinner with uh next to no utensils and only the bottom of the barrel remaining food storage to go off of there we are great oh the next thing I want to discuss with you would be the declaration of orders we will not obey. It goes way back to the very beginning of the Oath Keepers, and there are various versions or iterations of it online. Um, it seems to me that it began as very short declarative statements of the 10 orders we will not obey, is there any significance to that? I mean, was it meant deliberately to parallel the Bill of Rights or why 10? I, I don't know why specifically 10 orders. I think he might have just thought of 10 things. And that happened in the initial frenzy of the two hour, or excuse me, the two days he spent working on all of the original documents for Oath Keepers and putting together the original blog and launching the thing. And the only time Stuart is willing to put work into absolutely anything is at the very beginning of a project or in a panic. And so after that, he just never changed them, which is why some elements seem to be uh, perpetually stuck in 2009 or in early 2000s conspiracy theory specifically. And the original 10 orders were never edited they appeared online in abbreviated forms or on a merch apparel, but the official version just stayed frozen in time from the inception of Oath Keepers, even when the focus moved to completely different conspiracy theories or a different focus on the supposed playbook of the New World Order than what was in the original 10 orders. All right. Kind of add a question to who is the New World Order exactly? That is a really difficult question to answer from the perspective of militia ideology. A bunch of guys um, would now tell you that it's the deep state, but the reality is that the New World Order in militia circles is a background presence that is so readily assumed to be real and assumed as a foundational part of reality that it's not really examined personal belief level. Like there is a vague belief in um, wealthy elites who are members of the Bilderberg Group and the Council on Foreign Relations, the World Bank, and the World Economic Forum. Um manipulating current politics and positioning events to destabilize human societies and consolidate power and wealth into fewer and fewer hands which 
is a very convenient narrative because that is something that the wealthy and the politically connected very often do, but it assumes a monolithic organization behind all of it moving with a single unified purpose through many fronts. And that um, depending on your level of belief and the specificity of it, any and all um, historical events can be traced back to it. And a bunch of the founding mythology of this has its roots in the John Birch Society promoting um, fears of communist conspiracy in the early Cold War. That is where a lot of the general like emotional language around it comes from. And then very much of it comes much from much older roots in the uh, theory of the Illuminati and the popularized um, anti-Semitic conspiracy version of the theory of the Bavarian Illuminati and their involvement in the French Revolution and then spiced up with the language in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And so anti-Semitic conspiracy theory like that and cultural Bolshevism and other Nazi propaganda uh, bits and bobs are in the DNA of the vague background belief in the New World Order. And everybody has their own opinion on what specifically is going supernatural it is. But the general assumption is in a completely amoral and at least hobbyist occultist clubhouse of secret masters behind world events who want to destroy everything that you hold dear and institute a new feudalism or caste system with themselves at the top. And this can be done at the behest of the devil or the antichrist and a particular figure you hate might be at the center of it. Um, George Soros is a very common target and, to a lot of militia people for a long time, Henry Kissinger was considered um, one of the central pillars of the New World Order. And, and they uh, have, uh, I mean, there's a long history of this in American politics. Yes. Um, the anti-American, uh, the anti-Masonic Party, for example. Yes. Uh, Masons, that is a huge oversight that I did not mention um, for fear-mongering about the Masons. But it's just it, curious. I mean, it is amorphous. And another interchangeable term, of course, is globalist, which goes along with the you know, sort of the, the buzzword cosmopolitan, which usually means the Jews. Yeah, or just uh, ultimately globalist, transnationalist, or cosmopolitan is used as a term for anybody that is in opposition to militant nationalism. And baked into that is a bunch of beliefs that track with anti-Semitism and lead to it. So you end up with people believing in conspiracy that has anti-Semitic traits, even if they themselves do not believe in anti-Semitic conspiracy theory or hate the Jews, at least initially. But the uh, ability to lead in is always there in the belief system. And the tropes of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory are always there in the belief system, which goes back to like early medieval mistrust of anybody who was a merchant or a moneylender for a living because uh, good people should operate in a gift economy between neighbors or else be elite landowners.
and also the biblical prohibition against usury. Um, which, and, com which comes from that. It comes from an agrarian, uh, agrarian morality, um, community-based standpoint. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> yeah, and it, it is, it's kind of odd to me because it's, it's a kind of a, a shifting target. There's this odd parallel with sort of left-wing theory about the capitalist class. Um, where you know you have a global capitalist class, and it, it is odd to me the extent to which there's you know this parallel. And I know I want to talk about the orders you will not obey, but I mean, at various points in uh Stewart's career, he seemed to say, Well, we're, we're gonna go to Portland, so we're gonna turn Antifa into the Oath Keepers, which you know. Was he delusional? I mean, in 2000, if 2009 Oath Keepers existed in 2016, it might have almost been on the table. Uh, or uh, 2011 Oath Keepers, when Oath Keepers was uh, protesting the death of Jose Garena and insisted on uh, his uh, murder by the police as a Hispanic Marine veteran who was given no chance to surrender when they busted into the wrong house looking for drugs. And uh, the all of the cops on the Oath Keepers Board of Directors quit in unison in protest of Oath Keepers having anything negative to say about cops or second-guessing cops whatsoever. That version of Oath Keepers um, could have gotten Twitter threads dedicated to it for uh, anti-fascist groups being problematically linking arms with right-wing-leaning conspiracy theorists, and not the version of Oath Keepers that it inevitably turned into as the half-life wound down by 2016 or 17. And I think the simple answer is that Stewart kind of doesn't understand the left. He doesn't seem to have a great um, conception of what the John Brown gun clubs are, because I've heard reporters previously say that he was, when talking about like redneck revolt, and other uh, left-wing militant anti-fascist networks that he has absolutely no common ground with them and he'll see them on the battlefield because they're communists. And at the same time, he instructed me when I was for a limited time the Oath Keepers correspondence monkey with the, or one of them, reminding him to email back a John Brown Gun Club chapter that was talking about doing some kind of joint thing before it became clear that Oath Keepers was completely lost in the sauce. Though he doesn't seem to have really fully understood um, how left-wing a bunch of these organizations were or how Oath Keepers was now being perceived as an appendage of power and the authority system in the United States instead of being opposed to it. And might just not have fundamentally understood how racist his own base was. Yep. There's this, this um, one, sorry, this one uh, point I want to make is that uh, there is very much a temptation on the left to talk about the capitalist class in the same amorphous way as um, uh, the right-wing the right fringe. Yeah, and what I see, and this is just my subjective opinion from being, I have, like at this point, a few community college classes under my belt. I have no, I have made no great study of political theories or uh, government systems, but I have been exposed a lot 
to the like emotions and changing tides of right-wing militants and right-wing extremists. And what I'm seeing a lot is that the people who believe in the amorphous capitalist class with all the characteristics of the nefarious new world order tend to be Marxist, Leninist, and, Leninist, and Stalinists, and Maoists, and other authoritarian left-wingers who have a lot in common in their belief systems with right-wing fringe people to the point where there are a lot of Maoist communists who publish infographics favorably comparing Donald Trump to Chairman Mao as a revolutionary who radicalized the rural working people against the urban the urban uh, petite bourgeoisie. It's the worst crossover of all time. And the most of even the radical left, I see an understanding of global capitalist systems as like a sorting algorithm that in the broad sense and in a game of averages on a very large scale promotes um, the acquisition of power and short-term gain and personal prestige over any kind of long-term thinking or community-based thinking that's good for society and creates both systemic failures that make recruiting for anti-government groups easy and creates environments where authoritarian personalities can incubate and pad out their resumes with impressive sounding business business terms before they break into politics and then also a very easy avenue for the corruption of politics by money but you can fully achieve all of those with authoritarian leftism has been done a lot of times but they're those are the traits in common and we have a lot more corporations than we have authoritarian leftist governments well, sorry that was just my amateurist amateur no and, and, and uh, actually it's very insightful uh one of the weird things you see on the left is that there, there's a tendency to ignore um volume three of capital which was the volume that was cobbled together by uh, friedrich engels after the death of marx um, in some sense, Engels himself better at editing, uh, in some sense, a more capable and comprehensible writer. Um, but what he had to work with was essentially a series of notes. And in sort of the middle chapters, like eh, 26 to 29 of Volume 3, um, uh, Marx and Engels present this theory of capitalism as based on fraud, which is essentially a theory of late capitalism which is developed by later thinkers, although Marx didn't have that term available to him. And there's this bizarre sense in which I, there's this, it is oddly uh, prophetic. If you look at the developments in our current economy, like Donald Trump is absolutely fraudulent in every way. Every business he's had has been a grift. Um, the uh, the return uh, the uh, clinging to quick fixes and demagoguery as the system collapses and as you get a collapse of like people are much more common to try to extract maximum value out of whatever's available to them if they feel like they have to before somebody else does it first where if somebody is exploiting the commons happens when somebody takes more than their fair share and is not punished for it and everybody who does not take more than they need to get ahead becomes a sucker 
right? Especially in a society that puts a lot of emphasis on the value of competition and dominance. And I, there's, it's a, this is just a common repeating pattern in history that we've developed now as these theories of economic systems were like, like when you look at even like the anti-federalist papers, the bits of that that seem prophetic are basically talking about the same social ills just with the wrong solution. And it goes back to the origins of modern liberalism, where you have this limited, you know, unlimited right of property based on your ability to mix labor with property. Um, but then that completely becomes transmogrified into your ability to float a stock that, you know, like Tesla, right? That, you know, yep. is really based on nothing as a bubble that could at some point crash the entire economy like we saw in 2008 but ultimately it does enrich a few people and that's just all it becomes is uh the definition of who wins and who loses in society is who can hitch their wagon to the next big fraud and be the person to make a buck before it collapses which if grandma dusty were alive today she would have an nft she yeah. would have a crypt she would have a crypto coin and she'd be all she would have been all in on the GameStop thing if she could have understood the technology and i think she probably would have because she was very sharp and very about being on the cutting edge of things and uh certainly if stewart had not gotten completely off the deep end into uh full-blown militant warlordism by the time it came around if stewart had been less on the lord humongous career track by the time of the crypto explosion he would have been a crypto bro died in the wool like his personality was perfect for it and those are just the kinds of people that they succeed very well in these circumstances and then by their actions create an environment that further incentivizes and promotes fraud and limits consequences it seems like there's this weird kind of generational split in the a lot of the players we saw on January 6th, which characterized the far right as a whole. Um, you have like sort of the Gen X slash boomer oath keepers slash three percenters. And then you have the um, more like millennial, let's say, proud boys. And then you have Nick Fuentes and the America First people, the, the Zoomers. Um, which are you know, become increasingly digital as time goes on. Yeah, the uh, the online radicalized byproducts of an atomized and antisocial society, um, desperately trying to make connection over chat rooms. This is where you get Nick Fuentes building his. Um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it is building his uh, um, bisexual harem at his weird compound. Whatever else compound? that he's doing. Oh man, I didn't even know he had a weird compound. Um, he has like I a. Know. Oh man, I'm trying to remember the name of the one expose, but at one point he had like a frat house of uh, adult male of adult male virgins from a, with a in a very specific age range that he kept around him, and one of them got a girlfriend. He was. Uh, all white supremacists also who he was um, excised from the group and cut off like he'd just been declared suppressive in Scientology. Yeah. 
Well, that and yeah, that is that's the future. That's the future in in which we live. Um, that's the future of the Republican Party. So America First is going to completely supplant supplant CPAC. Uh, yeah, and they're not realizing it until it's until it's much too late. They think they can they think they can crest the wave, and they can't. They're just uh, they are the old crackling concrete that the awful weeds are growing up through. All right, so let's return to the orders we will not obey, or the declaration of orders we will not obey. And you probably know the the, the history of the text. I mean, there's you know there's the original version, then there are longer versions. There's a version that's on Oath Keepers of Utah, uh, and then I found what I think is a version uh, from Stuart that I sent to you. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to review it. Yes, I did. Yeah. Do you know if that's is that him? It begins with um, orders we will not obey. Uh, there's a quote from Washington um, before the Battle of Long Island, and he writes, "Such as a time is near at hand again. The fate of unborn millions will now depend, under God, on the courage and conduct of this army and this Marine Corps, this Air Force, this Navy, and the National Guard." And the police units of these sovereign states. Yeah, um, I absolutely believe that that is Stuart because he would always quote. He would always quote things like that. He was all about throwing in dramatic battlefield quotes from the founding fathers or paraphrases, and uh, it, all of Oath Keepers is uh, creative paraphrasing all the all the material. And, and this one absolutely thing, looks like his looks like his writing and quotes that he would select. And one of the things he does here is, you know, he takes his words and he puts them into sort of pseudo uh, 18th century language. You know, he adopts the, the nomenclature of the founding fathers, you know, while talking about the Air Force, which was created in what, 48, 49? I don't know. Um, all right. So. Back when I discovered the Oath Keepers in 2008, 2009, you know, I read the, the orders we will not obey. And the thing that flagged it for me was number five. Quote, we will not obey orders to invade and subjugate any state that asserts its sovereignty. Which, to my mind, as a Southerner, as a progressive Southerner, um, sent up red flags, like, immediately. And I've had huge online arguments with Pitt Cabbage, among others, about the idea that, like, you know, whether or not the Oath Keepers were racist. My own idea was basically that, like, well, yeah, it's, it's steeped in racist ideology, but there's, it's, um, there is this idea that, you know, you can't, you, he desperately wanted to found a mainstream movement. And you can't be mainstream if you're overtly racist. So he would kick overt racists out, while at the same time dog whistling to people who, you know, might be New York Confederate. So um, the quote from the document I sent you is, quote, we will not obey orders to invade and subjugate any state that asserts its sovereignty and declares the national compact to be in violation of the compact by which that state entered the union. And 
that's language that I find multiple times in the um, various declarations of secession of the seceding states uh, that in, in the Civil War, right? So the word compact appears in the Constitution at no point. There's no clause in the, comp, in the Constitution which allows you to uh, get out. Um, they were very rare. It was fragile at that point in time. And we've just been through the 12 or 13 years of the Articles of Confederation. And they wanted the project to succeed. Um, but they, they, there was no escape clause included. And there's the, the word compact appears once in the Constitution. And it is to say that no, states cannot agree to interstate compacts with one another. These are matters that are governed by the federal government. In other words, the only time the word compact appears in the Constitution is to limit the power of, quote, sovereignty of the states. And so to me, as a Southerner, this appears as a, a neo-Confederate do document. It adopts a neo-Confederate uh, conception of what the nation and what the Constitution is. And my belief has always been that Rhodes was your, your dad um, sort of tailoring this to say, hey, look, wink, wink, neo-Confederates, we, we, we are with you, right? Like, you think states have the right to secede, you know, on what basis? Okay, the right to own people, but we're, we're not going to say that. We, you know, support you. And, and that's the basis upon which the southern success of the Earth Keepers is based, including in my home state of North Carolina. This is a hard one. Um because like you were right in the language and in how it is handled that is absolutely hearkening back to neo-confederate ideology and neo-confederate thought and a lot of that i am very aware of because i've had to rewire my understanding of the constitution as i try to educate myself on how things actually work and discover all the ways in which i was raised to believe falsehoods or half-truths but the thing is um Stuart absolutely believed himself, as much as he believes in anything, to be an anti-racist warrior for American freedom. Um, and this is not just like an in front of the cameras thing. This is um, him ranting to me while we're alone in a car on the way back from an airport um, about how he is the deadliest threat to white supremacists worldwide. And the powers that be know it, and that's why the neo-Nazis are going to try to come after him. That's one of the groups that he thought was going to come to try to kill us at our house that would necessitate um, razor wire strung in the tree line, um, makeshift, makeshift um, anti-personnel devices such as uh, tree, dead trees spiked with tannerite cores and escape tunnels. And he really, really genuinely believed that he would monitor Stormfront to try to catch people who said they were an Oath Keepers and identify who they were, which is the most work he put into anything Oath Keepers related in the long term. And I think a large part of that is due to Stuart's own inherent psychology. And he very firmly identified as a quarter Mexican 
and kept to this Mexican identity, shielding against accusations of racism, but also uh, just as part of his personal identity. So I don't think he would have consciously thrown out a dog whistle to neo-Confederates. What I think is it's just that neo-Confederate propaganda has been so successful at capturing the right-wing fringe that it is just neo-Confederate ideas are just implicit in the entire cultural background that Stuart was tapping into when he drew up the Ten Orders and started getting into the militia sphere. It's uh, in the atomic makeup of the atmosphere of gun store conversation because this confederate south uh, never stopped fighting the civil war there was a battlefield defeat and then a long counteroffensive through information warfare propaganda and insurgency and a big part of that has been holding the center in popular culture and uh, modern propagandists such as Mel Gibson have been amazing at that with the trash film Gods and Generals. But the bigger part of it, I think, has been the complete capture of the right-wing culturals and conservative and militant nationalist zeitgeist with inherently neo-Confederate conceptions of how the world and the country works. And those assumptions were central to how Stuart approached learning constitutional law. Those are the emotion that's the emotional bedrock that he was already working with when he went into Yale was a set of personal emotional beliefs based on a neo-confederate foundation no matter how far back it is and whether or not he personally believed himself to be racist or was intentionally espousing that and that shows itself in tolerance for people flying the stars and bars as a quote-unquote heritage thing and a willingness to take it at their word that it was a heritage and not racism and in the embrace of secessionist ideas of how um, the state system works and since Stewart's case in particular while he publicly espoused loyalty to the, loyalty to the constitution in private he would call himself a near anarchist or say that we need to go back to depending on the conversation, go back to the Articles of Confederation and scrap the federal government completely or scrap government completely and go to um, roving democratic clans of hunter-gatherers as a superior model for civilization. And that's actually... The, I grew up in Germany, and one of the things that we you have in um, 1930s Germany is a phenomenon called Gleichschaltung. Uh, which is basically a process of ideological alignment. And if you're immersed in this, let's say, a movement that is uh, new to Jason, there's a sense in which perhaps you would absorb these ideas into your thinking. Um, at the same time, you have this odd uh, family connection, right, to a white yes. supremacy. Um that you know is you know in 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 far-right militia paramilitary stuff you have the order in colorado you know and the, the origins of the militia movement and sovereign citizenship in general is sort of 
bound up in, in white supremacy. Steeped in my, white supremacy, both implicit yeah. and explicitly ideological. And so my, my take on, on some of that is that like, okay, well, we need to uh, get rid of some of the negative press, the, the PR, this looks bad. So if we're going to be mainstream, which I, I think Stuart always believed the Oath Keepers should be mainstream. Yeah, he believed that Oath Keepers should be as big as the NRA and that it would catapult him to the presidency like of the country. Right. That was his end goal. He just wasn't willing to put in the work. And I can... Uh, when you when you finish this thought, I will break back in with my personal real sports psychology. Yeah. So, and the like uncovering the full extent of this white supremacist connection because it was like something that was always in the background and like family lore, like a funny story kind of thing that was never fully examined until I started looking back on all of this in context, and then especially during the trial when it became very relevant. Um, like it's something I'm noticing more and more as I write down my childhood memories and look back on how the whole thing worked, the movement and in general and Stuart, um, despite a professed status as being anti-racist or even what seemed to be genuine belief insofar as Stuart is capable of genuine belief that they are anti-racist. They're very willing to become white supremacist adjacent or absorb white supremacist ideology without critical thought or second guessing. And so what we have is what I kind of call the spectrum. And this is just from my observation is that in the entire right wing worldview, there's this image of the ideal America that is very much a result of long-term cultural uh, programming by groups like the John Birch Society. That's the conservative view of America as the, uh, like the, the base, the baseball game, the family ranch, the small town main street, the prosperous factory work, farmer, farmers, farmers market, rodeo day, uh, national anthem at a monster truck rally, all of that. And, it is just part of, yeah, part of the image that the image is all or majority white and that everybody is culturally homogenous. And it is even for people who don't believe in that as a desirable end goal in itself or have put a lot of thought into that as a concept, it is an underlying part of their vision of the ideal America that is under attack by these nefarious forces that they believe the new world order to be, which if you follow that to its logical conclusion leads to a lot of racism. And then within this, you have like where Oath Keepers and my family started out, which is like Ron Paul Republican, right-wing libertarian, borderline anarcho-capitalist, um, like rights, um, egalitarian, um, some crossover with feminism, a lot of right-wing libertarians um, in the early days were pro-abortion uh, from a, a bodily autonomy standpoint. And... And Rand. Yeah, and despite that, though, and despite this self-foundational myth of being superior to both sides and essentially a uh, 
like a stubborn refusal to admit that the right left spectrum exists and uh in, in, in any appreciable way and a clinging to like an authoritarian um freedom spectrum that puts them on the correct side or in horseshoe theory or some other nonsense is effectively advanced enlightened centrism and in the subtext though is always question that even crazy right-wing people are inherently more on your side than moderate left-wing people that uh like the Ron Paul libertarians and right-wing libertarians always by default grouped up with old racist Republicans before grouping up with Occupy Wall Street Democrats. And so there is a general sense that Democrats and liberals and leftists are inherently more statist and more authoritarian than authoritarian right-wing people and that informs who you pick when it comes to choosing sides and an issue and who your allies are. And then a little bit further over, you've got like edging into harder conservatism, uh, make mainstream war hawk republicanism where everybody really loves Francis Fukuyama and wants to end history and uh, turn Iraq into a functioning partner democracy that has McDonald's. And we got to bomb a bunch of people to do that. And that, in that the sense of right-wing tribalism is stronger and the background image of the ideal of homogenous by default white America is a lot stronger, a lot more explicit, and there's a lot less acceptance of freaks and outliers because right-wing libertarians, like, like a lot of fringe political movements, just tends to attract a lot of people that don't fit in anywhere in general. And became very much an island of misfit toys. Like I had a lot of weird conversations as a kid with people at like militia militia events with dudes in tie-dye shirts and baby doll head necklaces talking about music theory. And you don't get you don't get that in the at the big boys table at the Lincoln Reagan dinner. So everything is a lot more uh top-down white picket fence and organized. You go you have like the paleoconservative version of that with a lot more belief in hard nationalism, closed borders, and preserving um, white people's demographic majority in the United States on a cultural ground. And to keep up cultural continuity in the United States and to keep a sudden change in demographics from being exploited to upset the political system without explicitly being ethnically racist, even though it ends up being that way in practice. And then we begin to edge over into out white, um, white supremacy and white separate and like white, white supremacy is embarrassing um, half measure cousin white separatism that really is just white supremacy um, with a, with a makeup glow up. And that's where you've got, um, well, why shouldn't white people have a country where they're the majority? Like, it's not my fault that my ancestors committed genocide. I shouldn't lose the country where my, where I'm a majority that where the, my ancestors wrote all the founding laws and every other country in the world is, um, exerting border controls to maintain a homogenous identity. So we should just, uh, keep immigration controls like japan does and nobody calls them racist even though they do they, that's just ignored and then you begin to get over into 
the Jews are attempting to, well, not the Jews quite yet, because there are still people who believe that the globalists are importing third world populations, quote unquote, to destabilize America and provide a recruiting pool for an army to overthrow the armed right wing American middle class and working class and remove them as an obstacle to leftist tyranny. And they, a lot of them seem to genuinely believe that they're not racist because they conceive of some black and brown and Asian people being in the culturally homogenous armed group that would uh, be resisting this attempt at globalist at globalist tyranny. And that's where you've got the right wing fixation on making like the rooftop Koreans in the Rodney King riots into like mascots. And then you have your out white white supremacists and these all exist on a spectrum without hard dividing lines and it is entirely possible to end up in groups of people running around in the woods with camouflage uniforms and semi-automatic weapons where you have people who are friends of friends with the entire length and breadth of that and that is just kind of background accepted and so that's how you get like in Terrio and yes yeah so all right that's good we reached 40 minutes would you be okay doing another 30 yes because we gotta get we gotta at least get through the rest of the of the 10 orders <laughs> okay well actually i i don't know that we need to go through all 10 but if you have more to say about 10 that's great because those questions hadn't occurred to me i actually wanted to talk about Number five specifically, because as you know, I was born in uh, North Carolina. Most of my family is from South Carolina, and, and that's that stood out to you. Yes, I think that's. I think really think that's just a cultural marker of the market that Stewart's appealing to, and all the stuff that he implicitly absorbed as a background. Because I never saw any like neo Confederate ideology from Stewart. Right, but as, as, as I mentioned, and I, I won't put this in podcast, but like, you know, he uses the word compact, right, which doesn't appear in the Constitution except once, but if you look at all the declarations of causes, it appears 13 times, right? The idea yeah. that the Constitution is a compact that we can break, that's a neo, that's a Confederate idea, right? I mean, I've, I've been, God, I, I've been in the basement of the Charleston Mercury, the Charleston Public Library, read all the editorials from that time because interestingly my grandfather was an anti-confederate southerner he was a, a, a uh, he raised me he was a, a member of a sons of the confederacy but he thought this the civil war is a fucking bad idea which it was um, <laughs> and you know he, he like schooled me all and like his favorite that's a very important background it's a, such a tragedy that like eastern tennessee has forgotten that it was pro-union and that the confederacy right. um invaded them with a full army to prevent them from staying with the union northern georgia and western north carolina as well and you know i see confederate flags fly i vacation in western north carolina all the time i see confederate flags flying there all the time i'm like it pisses me off because you know, your ancestors are rolling over the graves. And, um, but yeah, I mean, my grandfather's favorite Confederate general was Longstreet, 
who led a militia, a, a racially integrated militia, uh, against an all-white militia that sought to impose white supremacy. Uh, and, yeah, it just, it, it, it kind of bugs me, like, when people talk about white Southerners, it, like, there are anti-racist white Southerners, you know. It's just that um, by means of electoral fuckery, uh, a implicitly racist uh, strongman party has cemented control over the southern long time strategy so you're not going to see the activity of uh and of anti-racist white southerners because the powers because the power structure is built to to promote racist white southerners and keep them blaming the wrong people back in hello so one of the questions that I'm, I'm wondering about focuses on the idea of Oath Creepers not as a far-right paramilitary ideologically motivated movement, uh, rather as a grift. Um, let's go back to the beginning. Who is Dusty Buckle in your family history? Uh, Dusty Buckle is the matriarch of uh, former matriarch, now dead of breast cancer, of Stewart's uh, side of my family, and a career, um, a career criminal girl boss is, I think, the best way to put it. Um, That's awesome. Always in charge of some kind of church. Um, always all about. A, when I knew her very much about like the crystal healing, um, psychic dolphin sort of spiritualist Christianity, like new, like new age, woo, um, stay at home, mom, Christian fusion, all about multi-level marketing, all about real estate deals, um, all about fraud for which she narrowly escaped prison time because she was actively dying when some of her, um, accomplished fraud were finally caught so I wasn't aware of that. You, you, I wasn't aware of the overlap. You knew Dusty Buckle. Oh yes, um, we moved when we, the first time we moved to Montana. We moved back to Las Vegas to live near her and help and help take care of her and help her out during her last years as she struggled with breast cancer. And that is the reason Vegas, and then also completely. Stewart uh, founded Oath Keepers. It was not long after Dusty died. Was it that you were broke because Stewart was lazy, or were you broke because you'd helped spent so much money helping her through her treatment? I don't know if we ever gave money to Dusty for her treatment. I think we might have paid the power bill a couple of times, but. Um, that was all because of Stuart's laziness. Like, at the, to put this in context, um, Stuart never passed the Nevada bar. So he was a member in good standing of the Montana bar until he was disbarred for effectively abandoning clients in, like, courtside Arizona um, in right-wing populist cases that he got bored with and stopped answering emails for. Um, but he could have worked for a casino and also was able to do advanced level paralegal work 
and write legal briefs. That's why his Gmail address that he used for the duration of Oath Keepers was Rhodes Legal Writing. That was his business address from his freelancing job. And he had effectively unlimited um, ghostwriting legal briefs for different trial lawyers. He had unlimited $40 an hour work right. in 2009 and other that paid so always in from, demand because other lawyers were lazy yeah other lawyers just wanted to front the workload off on with great writing credentials like he won an award for a paper on the constitution he had a good persuasive like argumentative writing writing style when he actually did it and uh like he some clients in some cases, he could have charged up to two hundred an hour, but the uh, more often a hundred dollars an hour. That was, a, but his uh, access to forty dollar an hour work writing legal briefs was literally endless. And I mean, this I, entire I time, like, like you could tell, like like anyone, the, the quality is variable. Right. So, I mean, there are some yeah. things where he would just dash it off without copy editing and it was sloppy. Um, and there were other things where, you know, clearly either he or Tasha had taken the time to edit it. Right. Yep. Um, and, you know, the quality was was much better. But. Yeah. Just, just again, going off the website, I don't know how much of that was him or over the years, the various people that he conned into, um, you know, writing those websites and, like, as you described, would burn through people uh, who would help him with the Oath Keepers and his various other projects. Yep, and that is a continuing pattern, but... Like when he did work, he had clients and got paid, but he just wouldn't. And so, with absolutely limited work for uh, more money per hour than I personally have ever earned, and most like a lot of people have personally ever earned, um, we were constantly on the verge of having utilities shut off, hadn't except the food storage, and we're on the verge of being evicted. Um, always and that was just the uh like ob and then obviously no dentists or dentist or doctor visits and uh and then when you get too far behind you guys would have to move again right which i learned by um cyber stalking your mom online yeah that was i think more Stuart getting in trouble in some capacity and then having to skip town or when he'd burned through all of his social bridges to the point where he had no longer had a network to fall back on to support himself or when he'd burned through his family um, shield. Like you, while he was in Montana the first time, skated, quote unquote, working as a lawyer for a long time because uh, his bosses didn't want to fire somebody with a large family to support. And he was able to uh, go on. Oh, he was able to uh, just go on that for a while. So we were a component of the grift. I think it was the entire reason we exist. My 
<laughs> as being a component of the grift in keeping him from being fired, yeah. furthering his image, and serving as part of his resume for like higher level politics and national level fame. One of the most informative things is like, first off, let's get the excuses out of the way. Stewart came from a background of deep generational trauma. Um, right. Lots of trauma being migrant farm workers in absolute poverty, lots of horrific violence. Uh, there was a great uncle who rode with Pancho yep. uh, during the uh, Mexican Revolution. There's a somewhere there is a picture of an uncle that I knew as a child being held as a baby by Pancho Villa in a family photo. And then after that, there was a bunch of just vicious intra-family violence. Uh, one great uncle uh, getting dis being displeased that his son uh, tied his the bumper of his pickup truck and, dr and uh, drug him for a mile or so on a gravel road to teach him a lesson. It's shit like that. Did he and survive? Then, yes. As far as I know. And then you get to uh, you get to Stuart and uh, Stuart's father also, like his biological father that he barely knows. And Stuart might even not, might his biological father is dead because when his family contacted us to try to get a hold of him about that, uh, we no longer had any way of contacting him except through his criminal defense lawyers in DC who never answer any mail from my mom's lawyers. Wow. So he might not, he might not know still that his father is dead. I'm, I've met that guy maybe once or maybe once. Um, but his uh, biological father also has had people accusing him of uh, uh, sexual abuse in other families and marriages that he had across the country. I mean, wait a minute. You said marriage is plural or is this, a polygamy situation, or uh, no? This is a serial um, skip town and have a, and start a new life situation okay, with both you. with both his mother and father, and uh, like like Dusty Buckle Buckle was the name of her fifth ex husband, and she kept it through um, all subsequent divorces because it just sounded cool and it it was great. It was good it for her cool. branding to have a good surname. Yeah. Yep, I was wondering about Elmer. Like, Elmer's fucking cool. Stuart, eh, not so much. It was made fun of because of uh, Elmer Fudd when he was in middle school and never got over it. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, lots of generational trauma. Lots of... And the, uh, the thing that sticks out that really informs Stuart's behavior is I think there is a lot of... I'm just going to... This is just me talking. I think Stewart's relationship with his mother would be called a family counselor in the modern day covert incest. Okay, what does covert incest mean? What's not so out, not explicitly sex, not explicitly yeah. incestuous, but like dramatic, especially talking about details, dramatic oversharing. And a level and a level in kind of emotional intimacy more appropriate to a romantic partner than your children is a form of very advanced parentification. So not maintaining appropriate boundaries. Not maintaining any boundaries. Any boundaries. Yeah. Having swinger parties, walking around the house naked. Right. So I can relate to that. Um, 
it sounds like there's possibly a personality disorder in play. I think um, very much so. Dusty was at the very malignant narcissist. Yeah. If, uh, if nothing else. And I think there might have been a lot else. And definitely uh, her children have a lot, her other children have a lot in the way of personality disorders. So as Stuart's uh, one sister uh, really helped us see through a lot of Stuart's manipulation techniques because she is fundamentally like Stuart, but very much dumber and more obvious. And so she would effectively um, go through the baby's first trial version of all of Stuart's manipulation techniques fail and then we would know to recognize it executed them more competently and it was like wait that was that the entire time that was a learned behavior that dusty is also exhibiting in plain text but it's been subtext and he's always done it i, I know I, i've read like um well all your mom's blog posts and she sometimes describes Stuart as brilliant um but i i, I don't see it um, I mean, you know, perhaps with this called It's definitely my mom's personal belief, and that is part of the belief system that kept her tied to Stuart for so long. Yeah. Is so and that's kind of where I'm going. Is in a lot of ways, Stuart's behavior to people looking at outside doesn't make any damn sense. Because my perspective of Stuart is somebody who is very careful in a lot of ways and very self-serving and survival oriented and risk averse and yet he does stuff like storming the capital and that doesn't make any sense it's a contradiction unless you're looking at it correctly which is that i don't think stewart fundamentally has a lot in common psychologically with most people and not even like talking about like sociopathy like well, to an extent, yes, but just like the way he's seized on things. For explaining Stuart, I've ever found. And this just recently hit on this, which is a great, great way to describe it. Is I assign everybody homework and I tell them to go and find and play a free short horror video game on the Internet called Growing My Grandpa. And the plot and premise, and there's a people like big YouTubers play through it, and so you can find you can find the play along video if you want to if you want a Markiplier's commentary, instead of if you scare easily, but it's just um, the basic plot is a little basement to explore around, and without realizing that she's messing with things that are very dangerous, finds her grandfather's laboratory where he was exploring the borderlands between ancient occultism and cutting edge neuroscience and psychology and playing around with trying to refine and scientifically explain demon summoning and she ends up um, creating this thing that is growing a persona based on her desire to have her beloved grandfather back and so it's inhabits a doll to gain a basic human it picks up her father's facial features from a photo and she feeds it um journals and family photos to feed this perfect mimic enough 
information about her lost grandfather that it can imitate him so flawlessly that it's effectively the same thing. But underneath is a vicious predatory animal intelligence that will cast off the outer grandpa shell whenever it's necessary to survive, uh, find a better shell or advantageous. And that is fundamentally Stuart. Right. I think is there is a basic level animal intelligence that is survival and comfort and self-interest oriented, but very short-sighted. And on top of that is a series of structures that he has built for himself to go off of for navigating the world in the absence of a lot of the emotions that we have and in the absence of an inherent emotional sense of morality and also in the total absence of any nurture that would allow him successfully navigate the world with a set of internal ideas like there's uh, the TEDx talks with talking about uh, pro-social sociopaths who have zero brain activity in any of the brain centers that regulate emotional intelligence or impulse control and they've been living just fine and never realized it because they had okay childhoods with no other trauma and Stuart doesn't have any of that and he's acquired of right-wing culture and like fanatical American mythos to construct a personality out of and then layered bits of learned experience on it in a very artificial way. And, and the thing that gets me is like how many other people are there like this? Like it doesn't have to be millions. It, you know, there are tens of thousands of people with whom this kind of uh, socio-psychological message will resonate. And that's enough to actually pose a, a, a real danger to our constitutional republic. And our uh, democratic values and our society and people just trying to live their lives, yes. And it's just... As, like, Stewart never created any original artwork of his own, but he is able to perfectly mimic off of a reference and do it with speed and efficiency. Like, he is absolutely incapable of thinking of anything original. It, his uh, sculptures were based off of reference photos and perfectly executed and, and imitated, but he is absolutely incapable of adding creative flair doing his own style. And everything is just a rehash and imitation of something he saw somewhere else without spark or originality. And he's able to do that. He's There is a kind of brilliance in it. But there, it, it the main utility is he's able to fool people into buying the personality, which is the main lesson he absorbed from his childhood was... For multiple generations, like my great grandmother still had Indian braids and wore um, like a fringe and wore a fringe dress and lived in a family culture that still had Native American traditions in it. And that was so thoroughly annihilated over the ensuing generations that I have no idea um, what lineage I technically have according to a DNA test. Last February, I live tweeted 
on Stuart Rhodes's detention hearing, and there was a, a couple who were proposed as custodians, uh, Kyla and Ben. And um, these were, I believe, cousins by marriage. And it was proposed that Rhodes would stay on their property and um, that he would reside in one of the two houses that was currently occupied by uh, Kyla's parents. Uh, it was subsequently revealed by J.J. McNabb that one of the uh, parents was, in fact, Roger Elvick, which was kind of astonishing. So, who is Roger Elvick? The pimp Roger daddy Elvick. of white supremacist adjacent grifting. And right. <laughs> yeah. Right, you know, exactly. I mean, that's, I, I think he was he was convicted in Hawaii? Um, I mean, yeah, because he was selling his nonsense to uh, Native Hawaiians, and he was starting a tiny sovereign citizen movement um, based around um, basically a wire sovereign. fraud in the name of the Kingdom of Hawaii under the legal fiction that it still legally exists. And yeah. the best way to do that was to buy his packets of promotional materials, because just like um, real estate, the real on the classes and kits to everybody so they can go out there in the struggle and try to make it work. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, you you do some seminars, um, you know, you, you tell people about the, your theory and you charge them a certain amount of money and you skip down. Yeah, and he's he's kept that. He's been, I think, been imprisoned three times, if I'm remembering correctly, and he's kept the grift going from prison. Until like his old age retirement, the grift has been unstoppable. The man never stops hustling. You got you got almost have to respect it. You almost have to respect it, but as as the great drill said on Twitter, um, in retrospect, you don't got to hand the Nazis anything. No. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the weird things that I've seen over the years is that the sovereign citizen movement with the whole, oh, there's gold fringe on the flag. Oh, there's all caps in my charging documents. Oh, um, you know. Shit on the floor in the jail and you're not entering into a contract by using the plumbing and they have to let you go in much the same way. And just, and just like that, the there's a very particular nit formulaic kind of magical thinking feels very strongly to certain people to believe in sovereign citizenship where they believe that reality bends to legalese and the written law i had the va the awareness of the fact that my crazy uncle bobby like crazy uncle bobby was always a much more mainstream at once um, more connected to his Mexican identity than Stuart, but uh, more mainstream a little bit, and more mainstream war hawk Republican and like paleoconservative than Stuart's branch of Republicanism or the one that he adopted. Like in an alternate timeline, Stuart could have just as easily been a left-wing grifter who just wouldn't have been as successful, I think, because his style is better sphere and he would be the center of like a a sexual harassment cancel event 
and his uh, yeah. his co-op his co-op in rural Portland would have fallen apart like in, like this year you, uh, on, his, on his trajectory. Like, she's suspected that he's had hundreds of affairs. Oh, probably. Like he seemed to he seems to think from his communication with me that the whole reason for their divorce and the reason that none of us children like him is because of all his affairs and is incapable of understanding anything else. Like he's wow, incapable of seeing anything else in his behavior that we would hate him for except for his affairs. And so has no filter when he talks because he assumes that our mother has already um, told us everything and attempted parental alienation. And so he just lets loose whenever, whatever he's talking all about his, uh, his affairs and his, um, his porn addiction and that, 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 by the way, in really inappropriate family, extents. Like, one affair is like bad enough. In normal family, one affair is bad enough. But yeah, I mean, a bunch of the a bunch of the people that Stewart moved to Montana to be on our compound was because he was attempting to build a swing or sex cult around himself. That's hot! Oh my god! Yeah, they're all, all they were all people funny. you would love to see naked too. Oh god! <sighs> but um. Crazy Uncle Bobby. Uh, I remember one argument that I accidentally reignited when they were like one time he was staying with us at our first Montana home, um, arguing about like American idealism, and he was trying like our, the justification for the Iraq War. And I is position, uh, we should just kill everybody because if we let the children live, they will grow up to be enemies of America. Quite naturally. Yeah, and that's like the same the same shit that you see in internet right now, like Nazi rhetoric. And I said, "Well, isn't the same true of us? Like, wouldn't that make it justifiable for um, every Muslim country that we're hostile with to attack American citizens because we could produce more American soldiers?" And he clapped me on the shoulder and said, "In this like this condescending grandfatherly like, oh oh little boy town well that's because we didn't do 9-11 and then they had it then my mom was mad at me because they were up arguing for another four hours after that and so but the one thing i knew about uncle bobby was because stewart um one of his behaviors that he picked up was a huge part of his socialization was being in the army in the 80s when there were basically no rules or standards for behavior and uh and like the the basics of like Stewart's grandstanding and belief in his own importance go back to like his childhood. Like my mom has that you've seen with his uh, bizarre thirteen year old declaration that he's never going to eat candy or become a white supremacist on like swearing solemnly on his uh, family memory and his bloodline or whatever the fuck. And he's going to become a more perfect man. Defending his country and high ideals and not engaging in any sexual immorality. It's like three pages. Did he? Like, okay. Yeah. Okay. That, My that, uh, but, so like that, the whole core of what you see when Stuart does public speaking was, <laughs> was already set by the time he was like in high school. Yeah. And then he built, he picked up structures and skins to, to work with and skins to wear socially. At different points in his life, like he picked up his for hanging out with the bros 
from being in basic training in the 80s <clears throat> and has kept it even when it's been um, extremely socially inappropriate. It's like a like in a vampire story where if you meet a vampire at a party and they're not quite a sapient sentient being, you can ask them. They're very superficially charming, but you can ask them the same question phrased the same way five different times and you get the exact same answer by rote memory just delivered very charmingly like a perfect like an actor's perfect take like that's how stewart interacts or how you profess to have um these sort of traditional values but you know it's fine to have your wife strip for you for god knows how many years yeah um like and that's a I think is okay because being okay with that showing like the confluence of functioning malignant sociopaths and antisocial social sociopaths um, operating inside conservative cultural spheres that was uh, a precursor to like Stewart and Andrew Tate are absolutely on the same wavelength yeah but yeah that that's and that's so like the incredibly crude, hypersexualized, everything sexual, no filter socialization that he picked up by rote. Like that's like that's like talking to Stuart. Like living with Stuart is like living with a randomly shuffled Chinese room. If you if anybody knows like that thought experiment, uh, with personality traits copied from all of the worst people in each category yeah and so one time we're over at uncle bobby's um attempt at moving to montana with his four is the who is the one who is uh roger elvick's uh daughter and she's been support him while he pursues his dream of being an artist so he's a stay-at-home husband who paints shitty landscapes um there are strong common threads running through all of this and they move to Montana and they do a horrible job of trying to homestead. And she tried to adopt a bobcat because she had no idea what it was and didn't understand why this huge cat with the tail cut off was so mad when she was just trying to befriend it. And in the midst of all this, Stuart goes snooping through their damn house because that's one of Stuart's enduring consistent traits is being a snoopy bitch. And finds the finds uh polaroid photos of their uh bondage photo shoots where Ooh. he finds um photos of my uncle bobby uh suspended from the ceiling by a vice grip on his testicles and what? my aunt armband uh sexually dominating him and showed these pictures to my mom and other thank god i haven't seen them but like way later when i um was in a depressive shell and withdrew from boomer militia world to go hang out with um 4chan losers and distract myself from the coming end of the world on like the shock sites like at one point i saw somebody like prankster linked me to a picture of an old man suspended from a vice grip on his balls from a ceiling and i was like oh yeah like uncle bobby Oh <laughs> it God. was just completely familiar. Um, so, yeah, Stuart, it's like one of Stuart's favorite stories to tell. 
um, Uncle Bobby's um, weird race play um, BDSM relationship. And so that is how I learned as a child that crazy Uncle Bobby had married. Was that one of Stuart's favorite stories to tell? He told the story? Oh, yeah. To all kinds of people. Like, that was one of, like, that was, like, one of, like, the, that was one of, like, the, like, when you're at a, when you're at a family get-together and your parents have, like, the same stories they love to tell about, like, like, I've heard Uncle Bobby's um, testicular vice suspension bondage, um, Nazi, Nazi, Nazi prima donna story in wildly inappropriate social settings so many times. Well, again, I want to thank you so much. Um, I'd love to talk to you again on the podcast, um, but we'll see how long your dad gets sentenced to. You know, my hope is that he winds up in a federal penitentiary. That is the highest level of security because he has a national network of terrorist supporters who might work to free him. Yeah, especially as his uh, audience in the militia world contracts but expands in the MAGA world and he keeps gaining fans through the likes of Dinesh D'Souza's podcast. Like, run-of-the-mill MAGA people are dumber, more impressionable, and less risk-averse than uh, Deep Hills militiamen and are more likely to actually try to knock over a prison convoy and rescue his ass, in my opinion. Because Stewart spent a lot of his credibility with the militia movement, but he's been working overtime to ingratiate himself with um, the the self-branded deplorables. All right. Well, thanks so much, and um, have a lovely, lovely February. Have a lovely, have a lovely February. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>